Let's pray uh, as we consider this passage of Scripture this morning. Father, we give you thanks for your word. It is powerful, and we pray that you would speak powerfully through it and through me somehow. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, when I was in uh, seminary, our Old Testament professor, this is the Old Testament survey, it's a class that everyone took, it was a big class, 50, 60 students, it was like the only class that was this large, it was in this one big seminar hall, and uh, he was passing around a bowl, just a bowl, clay bowl, very simple, and he's explaining the story behind the bowl. He says that he found it in a flea market in New England, seminaries up in the Boston area, he found it in a flea market in, in uh, New England, and he's an archaeologist, this professor, and he thought, this looks kind of old. And so he bought it and kind of inquired about it, but there wasn't really any information on where it came from. And so he took it, he worked at the Harvard lab, archaeological lab, where they dated these artifacts, and he took it there, and they dated and placed it, and their analysis indicated that this thing came from the ancient Near East, during the time of Abraham. And it's the kind of bowl that a, that a nomad family would have carried around. And he's, we're like passing it through 60 students. It's incredible. But the simplicity of the bowl, it was not ornate. It was, it was basic. It, it was as simple as the characters that made it. And as I think about that bowl, and I think about the book of Genesis, it seems to me that the book of Genesis is the literary equivalent of that bowl. It's a story formed by nomads on the way in a land of sojourn. It's simple. You read the book of Genesis, very simple. And then you spend some time in it, and it just, it's brilliant. There is riches and treasures contained within the simple simplicity of the story. And as we've made our way through Genesis, we're now at the very end. This is the last sermon on Genesis, probably the last sermon I'll ever preach at this church in the book of Genesis. Because we've, we've done every passage in the book. And so here we are at the end. I, I've been thinking about this book and how simple it is, but yet how at the same time, it's so uh, loaded with treasures and wisdom and insight and all of the seeds of our salvation are, are to be found in this book. It's all there. Now, so we come to this final passage, and we're going to work through it in a very straightforward fashion. We're just going to kind of hit each little section here. We're going to look at four things. Jacob's death, Jacob's burial, the aftermath of Jacob's death. And then finally, we're going to consider that the end, the title of the sermon, the end is only the beginning. The end of the book of Genesis is really only the beginning. So those are the four points. Now, we got a lot of ground to cover, so let's just jump right in. Now, Jacob commands his sons. He, he's, remember, uh, this is all the same scene that we've been seeing. The, the blessing of the grandsons we looked at a few weeks ago. Last week, we looked at the blessing of his 12 sons. And now, verse 29, he commands his sons, all there, all witnessing this. And he says, verse 29, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave in the field of Ephron, the Hittite. Now, notice how specific he is. I mean, it's, it's like obsessive detail. 
in repetition. Look, look at this. In the, bury me in the cave of my fathers, in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, to the east of Mamre, in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite. Did I say that already? Yes, I did, but I want you to remember it. To possess as a burying place. There, that's where, verse 31, they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. That's where they buried Isaac, my mother, and Rebekah, his wife, my mother. And there I buried Leah. Look at verse 32 again. It's the field, the cave that we bought from the Hittites. Third time he said it. Jacob is pinpointing this and is really driving home, this is where I must be buried, right? I, I want to, there's a couple of things to notice here about Jacob at the end. The first is this, for all of Jacob's flaws, and there are many, for all of, it, it's almost hard to like, one of the, the commentators remark on how Jacob, like Esau's the likable one in the story, his brother, not Jacob. For all of Jacob's failures, for all of his acting like a scoundrel, here at the end, Jacob is clinging to the promises of God. He's clinging to the faith of his fathers, and it's manifesting itself in this desire to be, to be, to be buried in the land of his fathers. Remember Abraham, 250 years before, God said, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bless all nations through you. You shall have this land. You shall have a nation as numerous as the stars of the sky. And what does Abraham have 250 years later in terms of land, like actual real real estate? A burial plot, a cave. That's all he has. That's all this family of faith has. And so Jacob is saying, give me. I want to be placed in the only thing that God has given us thus far in 250 years of waiting. And he's not swayed. Jacob's not swayed by Egypt. He's been in Egypt for two decades, about two decades, almost two decades. Egypt, it's grandeur, the splendor, the sparkle of Egypt. He says, no, I want to go back to the middle of nowhere, the cave of Machpelah that was bought from the Hittite. That's where you're going to bury me. Has there ever been a better place to be buried in world history than Egypt? I mean, the Egyptians were obsessed with burial. I mean, it's like they they lived for it. They lived for burial. They spent their lives building tombs, these pyramids that we still go and see and wonder at. We're going to see in just a moment, they spent 40 days embalming him. Like they were master barriers. And Jacob says, no, take me to the field. Take me to the land, all that we have. Take me there. Bury me in the cave. Now, so that's the first thing. For all of, Jacob's, all of Jacob's flaws, Jacob is clinging to the faith here at the end. He's clinging to the promises of God at the end. The second thing I want us to see is that we see that Jacob is still a flawed man. Look at verse 31. Look at what he says. This is the cave where they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, This is the cave where they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. Remember Leah? Remember this story? Notice what he doesn't say about Leah. He doesn't call her his wife. He's stubbornly refused to call Leah throughout this story his wife. 
he won't admit it. You remember the story, right? Laban, Jacob, as a young man, strong as an ox, he moves this rock, he's impressing Rachel, and, and he, 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 he's smitten by Rachel. He works way more than he should work for any, any woman in this age, right? You know, it's seven years, like double time for Rachel. And remember what Laban does? Last minute, slips Leah into the tent. She's covered in her wedding garb. He has no idea. And surprise, in the morning, you're married to Leah. And so Jacob works another seven years for Rachel. All the while, Leah is just sort of this nuisance in his tent. She is birthing all of these sons that become the tribes. And Jacob has shown time and time again an unwillingness to receive her as his wife. And here at the very end, the same thing. He doesn't call her his wife. It's it's sad. And what we see here is here at the end, Jacob is not perfect. And I, I know for us, it's easy to get discouraged by sin our our own sin. It's easy to get discouraged by habits that we can't quite seem to kick. We we may move through life a few decades and then boom, we're back and doing sins that we were doing 40 years ago. It's like, why can I not get past this? Take heart. Perfection comes, but it's not before this life ends. It's after this life ends. It's when we reach glory. Our sanctification are growing more like Jesus happens as we make our way through this life. And this is a reminder of that. Jacob's on his deathbed. He still won't admit that Leah's his wife. And maybe you've experienced the loss of a loved one, and at their loss, following their loss, you realize there was sin in this loved one's life that you didn't even know about. Take heart. His mercy is more. If we've learned anything in the book of Genesis, I hope we've learned that these characters, this family of faith is messed up. They've got all kinds of problems. And that's the point. The point is the, the promises of God depend on God's faithfulness, not the people. And here we are at the end. God is faithful to Jacob, even though he's still falling in these ways, still sinning, still not recognizing Leah. It's his wife. So look, look at verse, keep reading, verse 33. So Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed, and he breathed his last, and he was gathered to his people. In Joseph's response, chapter 50, verse 1, Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Now we have seen Joseph weep a lot over the course of this book as well as our Lord, right? Our Lord Jesus wept. Shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He weeps over death. The faith, our faith and our trust in God to work things out doesn't produce stoicism in our hearts, but it enlivens, it deepens our emotional state. It makes us weep. Jesus weeps over the man he's about to raise from the dead. He still weeps because it's proper to weep at loss. And Joseph, Joseph does that here. And so they spend 40 days, the, the Egyptians do their professional kind of state-of-the-art embalming process. It takes 40 days. And then all of Egypt even weeps for Jacob, the old patriarch, for 70 days. And this is a powerful sight. The fact that the nations are weeping for a king of a tribe 
that is like 70 strong. They left, they left the land of Canaan. They came to Egypt with 70. They've had more children since then, so they're a little bigger than that. But tiny, tiny little nation. And the, grand, the Egyptians are weeping over the loss of their king, of Jacob. Because, it's, it's fitting that they do, because this king, Jacob, this family, is the hope of the nations. Out of him will come a king that will save the nations. So it's fitting that the nations, that, that Egypt even, is weeping for him. Now, we, we've seen just this past week what happens when a prominent figure, a, a, a queen in this case, dies, haven't we? The, the whole, I, I mean, I've been sort of intrigued by all of this, and it's been interesting to hear uh, British folk talk about it and the loss, the sense of loss, the sense that not just a, um, a queen has passed away, but a whole, one person said this, quote, a, a whole world has passed away with her. I mean, Think about it. Her first first person that worked for her was Winston Churchill, born in 1874. I mean, that's remarkable. She's been a fixture in the world. And so it's fitting that that, that people mourn that loss of, of her. And in the same way, with the death of Jacob comes that same sense of loss. Jacob was connected to Abraham. Jacob was a, was a teen. I mean, he lived into his teens with Abraham, his grandfather. So he's lost. It, it's the end of an era with his loss. And so Joseph tells the Pharaoh, we're going to bury him in the land of Canaan. And that would probably come as a surprise to the Pharaoh, given everything we said about the Egyptians and their burying practices. But, but he, he gives the green light. And so verse 7 and following Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of the Pharaoh, the elders of his household, all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers and his father's household. Only their children and flocks and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen. It was a very great company. This massive procession of Egyptians and the family of faith follow Jacob out to his burial. It's it's, it's a remarkable scene. And actually, it's a far cry from the next time the family of faith will exit Egypt with with the powers of Egypt, not marching in procession, but pursuing them to take them. So it's a remarkable thing, and, and they, they, they accompany him out, and they bury him with the fathers. Now, what I want us to do now, so that's Jacob's death and Jacob's burial. Now I'd like us to consider the aftermath of his, uh, of, his, of his death, of Jacob's death. Look at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. You see what they're still worried about what they did. They still have this guilt lingering in their hearts. How many times have a parent, parents died and left kind of the remaining siblings in a state of turmoil, right? This is kind of a universal phenomenon. And that's what they're worried about. The, the old patriarch is dead. Our father is dead. Does all of this fall into disarray? Does our relationship, maybe Joseph was only forgiving us based on his respect to the father, to Jacob, our dad. 
This moment right here explains so much of what we're about as a church. So I want us to kind of just sit in it for a moment. Even though his brothers, Joseph himself, has declared his brothers forgiven, right? He's declared them forgiven. Even though he's done that, even though they have a nephew named Manasseh, which means, brothers, I forgive you, (laughs) they still can't shake the sense of guilt. They still can't, their guilt torments them. And they worry, they fret. You know, Martin Luther was asked why he preached the gospel of Christ and his forgiveness every Sunday. And we say it often. You remember what his reply is? Because my congregation forgets it every Monday. That's why. We don't believe forgiveness. We struggle to believe forgiveness. We don't live. It's so hard for us to live out of the reality that we've been forgiven by God. And if you notice... Really, everything we do is specially designed to help remind us that indeed we are forgiven. We we select songs that are about our sin and Christ's mercy over them. We we have liturgy that reminds us of that. We have a time of confession. Every week the sermon is intended to drive that point home, that there is no condemnation in Christ, that you are forgiven in Christ. We have a meal that we take every week to remind us that his body and his blood atone for our sins and we can receive it and be spiritually nourished. We have baptism this morning that's a reminder that we have been washed clean of our sins, that we have been forgiven. It's all tailor-made to say, you're forgiven. And still, we can be like the brothers. Oh, man, what, what, if, uh, what if we're not forgiven? Maybe that was just something, maybe, maybe it ran out. Maybe that was, you know, just for, the, for dad. So what, what do they do? What do the brothers do? Look at verse 16. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Trust us. <laughs> Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. They're buttering, this has likely been fabricated, right? They're buttering Joseph up with a promise that they know he can't, he, he, he will keep. Joseph has honored his father time and time again. He's just promised to bury him in, in the land of his fathers and went to a great extent and put himself at risk before the Pharaoh, insulting Egypt to go out to the, to the boondocks to bury his father in a cave in the middle of nowhere. So they're like, he's going to follow dad's word. So they make up this story that dad said, forgive him. He kept the other promises. Now, I want us to notice something. There's a bit of a progression here that I think applies to us as well. The brothers have forgot. They have have forgotten uh, that Joseph really has forgiven them. They they, They don't believe that Joseph really does love and forgive them. And so what do they do? They step outside of that basis and fabricate a basis that they can believe in, that they are going to trust. Well, maybe if dad said, then he'll treat us kindly. Then he'll really forgive us. And is this not what we do as Christians so often? We find difficulty believing. Sure, God forgives in the abstract, but not after the umpteenth time that I've prayed in my time of confession that he would forgive. 
And so therefore, you stop believing in the love and mercy of the Father in Christ. So you step outside of that and you prop up, you fabricate another basis upon which you can stand. Well, maybe if I do like crush it at work, or maybe if I raise a perfect family, or maybe if I move into this neighborhood, or maybe if I get an Ivy League degree, or maybe if I do this, maybe if I do that, then I can satisfy my, my, the existential crisis that I face every day of not being in right relationship with my creator. Then I can work that out. And that's what the brothers have done. They've stepped outside of Joseph's love, and they've made up a rickety little prop to put before him as a basis for their standing before him. We do it too, don't we? Now, here's the thing, though. What happens? What happens when you do that? It it actually happens right here with the brothers. You see what they did, verse 16? They sent a message to Joseph. Their doubting Joseph's goodness and love towards them has created a rift between them and their brother so that now they're relaying messages to him by messengers. And the same thing is true for us. We begin to, here's the basis of Christ and his love for us, and we, we, we don't believe that, that there's no way that can be true, so we step outside of that, we fabricate our own basis. I'm an awesome Oklahoma City resident, or whatever it is. We fabricate our own basis, and then all of a sudden we begin to grow cold from God. We begin to hide from God. We begin, to, we get really busy. We, we hide behind the busyness of our lives. We pour into work or we pour into school or whatever it is. We, hide, we binge watch. We hide behind the binge watching. And, and we find when we get into this kind of state, it's like difficult to pray. Have you ever wondered why it's so hard to pray? Is it not because we're doubting the love of God? We're wondering if, if it, is his love real? towards us? We take the posture of Adam and Eve in the bushes. Remember after they sinned and rebelled against God, what did they do? They hid from him in bushes. And we do the same. Just like the brothers are hiding behind a messenger. Go tell him this message. We'll stay back here and cower and hope that he accepts it. That's not our relationship with, that's not what God gives us in Christ. Forgiveness, mercy, love, and it's real. It's solid. So look at, let's look at verse 17. Keep reading. Joseph wept. He's weeping again when they spoke to him. His brothers also came, and they fell down before him, and they said, Behold, the brothers say, we are your servants. And, and the language they're using is saying, like, we're servants of you, O Lord, O God. They're, they're actually calling him God, and they've probably... In their years in Egypt, they've kind of accepted the custom of treating the leader as a god. The Pharaoh was a god. So they're treating him as God. We, we, are, we are your servants, O God, they say. But Joseph said to them, verse 19, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? He's like, I reject me being divine outright. I'm not God. I have limits. As for you, verse 20, you meant evil against me, the refrain of the Joseph story, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You meant it for evil, but my suffering has brought about salvation by God's grace to to the world. So don't fear. I will provide 
for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. Verse 20 is a summary of the whole Joseph story. We've seen it so many times already. As for you, you meant evil against me, brothers, but God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. This is the summary of the whole Joseph story. We might say this is the summary of the whole Genesis story. It's the summary of all the scriptures, the whole Bible. If you want to summarize it, it's summarized in man intending evil, but God orchestrating it all for his good purposes. That's the story in a nutshell. Walter Brueggemann puts it like this. The brothers could not see that in the midst of their scheme was another plan about which none of them knew, a plan hidden but sure in its work. Even in the midst of the brothers trying to mastermind their, their lives and their circumstances, their brother's life, God was, they were just like puppets in God's hand. God was orchestrating the story. Do you believe that God's orchestrating our story? Despite all the plotting and planning of man, oftentimes for evil outcomes, that God is orchestrating a better plan, that this Joseph story is a little microcosm, a little mini story of the story of the world. That's what the scriptures teach. That's what they're teaching us. And so in order to see that, we have to remember, and this is the fourth and final point that we're going to close with, is that here in Genesis, the end is only the beginning. You know, the book of Genesis, that word actually means beginnings. That's all the word means. But Genesis is the beginnings. That's all we're getting here is the beginnings of the story. It's not the end of the story. I mean, praise God, it's not the end of the story. Did you see how it ends? Look at verse 22. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he in his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Mekir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you. You shall carry up my bones out of here. And Joseph died, 110 years old. They embalmed him, the Egyptians, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The end. I hope that's not the end of the story. It's not the end of the story. The whole book says beginnings. It's it's the beginning of the story. It's the beginning, right? If this is the end of the story, what we're left with is caves, burial caves, and coffins, The grand plan of God, the the land to the people of God amounts to a burial plot. That's it. Nothing more. If this is the end, the great nation that's as numerous as the stars of the sky is about 70, maybe maybe 90-ish. I don't know how many kids have been born since they came in. Tiny. Is this it? And the resounding answer is no. Already, we've seen God brings something out of nothing. He did it at the beginning of the story. Think about the book of Genesis. Remember what God, there was formlessness and void, and God creates ex nihilo out of nothing. He creates the world. And remember Sarah's womb? It was like a burial cave. Her womb was. It was a coffin. There was no life there. 
There was no life during her fertile years. There was no life in her old age, as there is you know, for any woman. It was a dead cave of a womb. And what does God bring forth from that cave, from that coffin of Sarah's womb? A nation to save all nations. He's been doing it time and time again. Joseph was as good as dead. And God raises him up to save the world. Joseph is now in a coffin. That's how this story works, right? We're seeing the pattern. God brings life out of death. All of it, all of this, this whole story depends on resurrection. If you're just looking at the story with the eyes of sight and not in faith, the story is over. Joseph's dead, the patriarchs are dead. But faith says, not so fast, not so fast. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. By faith, Abraham, not by sight, by faith, Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. This story of Genesis most definitely does not end here. In fact, the whole story is a cry for Christ. It's a cry for Jesus. And haven't we heard it throughout? All over the place is Christ. Shadows of Christ in this story. Most recently, the Joseph story. The the brother who had won the affection was blessed by his father and was receiving the inheritance, garners the jealousy of his brothers. And they cast him aside. They plunge him into suffering, into enslavement, into imprisonment. And down and down and down his life goes. But he's exalted to the right hand of the Pharaoh, from which he extends salvation to the nations and reconciliation to his family, to his brothers, the people of Israel, the family of faith. And he brings salvation to them. He brings them home. I mean, it's, the story. it's our story. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of creation, blessed by God, came into the world. His brothers did not receive him. They rejected him. They plunged him into suffering. Death on a cross where he atones for human sin. But that wasn't the end of the story. God resurrected him, raised him up to the right hand, not of the Pharaoh, but of God, from which he pours forth his spirit to extend salvation to the world. That's the story. That's what it's pointing to. This story is just a shadow of that story. In in, in that sense, this family story that we've been reading about, it's our story. It's our story. And praise God, it doesn't end in a coffin. It actually, it ends in empty coffins, in empty burial caves. It ends in resurrection. Joseph's fate will not be defined by this coffin, but it will be defined by God because death does not have the final word. Resurrection does. And we do get a picture of the end. So Genesis is not the end. The end of Genesis is not the end. It's only the beginning. We do get a picture of the end in the book of Revelation. I'm going I'm to close with a reading of Revelation chapter 21. Uh, it hasn't happened yet, so we're still waiting for it to happen. I, like I said, it's a story that we're still a part of right now. It's unfolding every second. It's unfolding. And John sees the end, and he records it, and he says this. Revelation chapter 21, uh, beginning at verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. And the angel showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates, 12 angels. And on, listen to this, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and on we go. Chapter 22, verse 1, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants will worship him. They will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. There will be no need for light, lamp, or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever with him. See, the end of Genesis is only the beginning of the story. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, I feel uh, wholly inadequate to communicate these truths. I feel, I feel like that clay bowl that was passed around in my seminary class. Um, inadequate to contain, so to speak, your word, to speak it forth, inadequate to communicate such truths. But I, I thank you that you promised to make yourself known through jars of clay, through weakness, weak vessels like all of us here this morning. So we ask for your spirit to break through all of our weakness, to break through the jar of clay, and speak your truth, goodness, and beauty to us this morning as we continue uh, to worship. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.